We want to open our Bibles now to the Epistle to the Romans. And for those that are listening to this and are not here present, I would suggest that you read Philippians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 as they provide a wonderful commentary on the Apostles' character and desire for Gentile believers, which we have here in brief in Romans 1. Let me read to you verses 8 through 15, which comprise the introduction to this epistle. Verses 1 through 7 are a salutation of greeting and identification of the writer in the audience. Verses 8 through 15 describe an introduction as he explains how much he would like to see them and what he desires for them. Verses 16 and 17 are a summary of the doctrinal part of the epistle. And verse 18 begins the argument, which will run into the middle of chapter 3, of proving that all men, Jews and Gentiles, are condemned before God. There we have an outline of the beginning of the book. But let me read to you verses 8 through 15. The Apostle Paul, to the beloved and called saints of God in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end, ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Amen. May God put his divine stamp of approval upon his word by sowing it deep into your hearts and causing your minds to lay hold of these things and to practice them. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. We dealt with this last Sunday. But the first thing Paul wanted to tell these believers in Rome is that he was thankful to God through Jesus Christ for them all. And what was he thankful for? Their faith. And what was spoken of throughout the whole world? Their faith. And what should be spoken of about you? Your faith should be spoken of. It is not wrong to speak of those that are full of faith and those that are faithful. It is the imagination of a proud heart that doesn't want to have those things stated. It is not a sign of humility that says men should not be commended and praised for their godliness. That is the twisted description of someone who doesn't know the word of God. Because the apostle spent much of his time praising, thanking, commending churches by name and individuals by name. There's nothing wrong about that. 
That's what we ought to be doing. Because those that are godly and faithful ought to be lifted up above those who are not. The belly worshipers ought to be ignored. They shouldn't be praised. They should be rebuked and warned. These men had their faith spoken of throughout the whole world, and it's good to speak about such things. We are thankful for every faithful saint that we meet. Those faithful ones that humble themselves to the Word of God and love the saints and seek unity of the saints based on Scripture, not their own ideas. We're thankful for every one of them. Paul was thankful for every one of them. He made mention of his thanksgiving in all of his prayers. And these Romans were among that class. He thanked God through Jesus Christ for them all. They were in the center of paganism. They were in the capital of a pagan empire. And yet they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there at the epicenter of the Roman world, Paul would commend these saints for their faith. You know the whole world would be looking at them as facing the greatest of opposition because there's where the king of the empire was located. But they served another king, a king called Jesus, and they were not ashamed of him. And so their faith was spoken of far and wide. And we want our faith to be spoken of, not for our praise, not for our glory, but for his and for the glory of the gospel. The gospel's worthy to be believed. The gospel's worthy to be obeyed. And if it results in men being convicted, men being encouraged by our faith, so be it. Let there be more of that happen. The Apostle Paul was such a great example, and we want to take his example and copy it to the best of our ability. Let us come to the ninth verse. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. There are things in this verse that we can learn. For God is my witness. He showed his tender regard for these saints by appealing to his many prayers for them in the ninth verse. And to add to his credibility, he swore. Oh, that all saints, you and me, could swear in the name of God that we pray always without ceasing for the same things that Paul prayed for, for these saints. Because Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that after taking and putting on the whole armor of God, the activity that Christians ought to be engaged in is prayer one for another. And what is that prayer? Well, Romans 1, Philippians 1, and Colossians 1 will tell you what to pray for. And you don't have to pray in length because the verse is going to tell us, I make mention of you in my prayers. Paul was as practical as he was wise and spiritual. I make mention of you always in my prayers. There's wisdom in this verse. Let's see if we can mine it from the Word of God. God is my witness. Swearing is using God's person or God's name to confirm your character or testimony. Paul does it often, including in this epistle. He uses it right here. The words, for God is my witness, is an oath. It's a vow. It is swearing. It is calling God to record. I say before God, who is listening to my words, that I pray for you always. And so my point is, and let me repeat myself, I would to God that you and I could make such an oath before God about our praying for one another. And that we would pray this way as Paul prayed for these saints and we'd be able to call God to record on our souls. Look at Romans chapter 9 to see him swear again in this epistle. 
I personally believe that every time he said God forbid is swearing. Because he's calling God to record against a hypothetical or rhetorical question that he's raising. But here he is taking another oath. Oaths are wonderful acts of worship when you do them for the right purpose at the right time in the name of one being only. And the name of one object only, God himself. We only swear in God's name, and we only swear for important objects for important reasons. And this was important enough for the Apostle Paul to convince that church in the center of the empire why he hadn't been there in so long, and that he did pray for them and he had a great concern for them. So he invoked the name of God to show them his seriousness. Now, if you, read, if you listen carefully, when I read Philippians 1 and Colossians 1, he did the same thing with those churches calling God to record on his soul that he just didn't say, I've been praying for you. You know, God forgive us and God convict us when we say, I've been praying for you because we prayed for someone once a month. Look at how Paul said it. Making mention of you all, without ceasing, making mention of you always in my prayers. That's a high standard, brethren. But he was busier than you are. And he was busier than you are with the person next to you. But he took the time for prayer, even though he was the great apostle. Romans chapter 9, we want to see him swearing again. Verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you the truth. By Jesus Christ, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. It's an act of worship. They swore all the time in the Old Testament. As the Lord liveth. Every time they said those words, they were swearing. If you ask somebody, will you do such and such for me? And it was an important matter. As the Lord liveth, I will. The Lord do so to me and more also, if I do not fulfill my obligation. That was swearing in the name of God in some very serious terms. The Lord judge me and judge me severely and more severely than the case that's at hand if I don't fulfill my part. Swearing is worship. God loves swearing. Do you know why it's an act of worship? Because men swear by the greatest thing they can think of in the universe. When two men have an argument, like in court, when two men have an argument and witnesses cannot determine who is telling the truth, for one of them to invoke a higher authority than themselves adds credibility and integrity to their words. And so if you are going to appeal to something to add power and weight to your words, The highest object in the universe is God himself. When God wanted to convince you of his truthfulness, he cannot cannot lie. So why would he even need to do this? Because swearing is wonderful. It's an act of worship. God swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing, I will bless thee. He swore by himself because he couldn't swear by any higher. Who was he going to appeal to but himself? Why am I going through this? Because these words teach us doctrine, and these words save us from the heresies of several denominations and cults. The Mennonites, the Quakers, the Jehovah's Witnesses will not make an oath, even in court. They will not put their left hand in a Bible and raise their right hand to heaven and say, so help me God. They're so ignorant of the word of God, and I want to save you from it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Swear not at all, neither by heaven nor by earth. Let your yeas be yea and your nays nay, and anything more than yea or nay is sin. 
So off they run down their little road because they found Matthew 5. James, in James chapter 5, quotes the Lord Jesus Christ and says, Swear not at all. Well, now, if he's, if swear not at all is to be understood absolutely about all swearing, then God himself is a sinner, Jesus is a sinner, and Paul's a sinner so many times it's hard to count them all up. They do not rightly divide the word of truth. The first thing we know, a simple child can read the Bible and see, once they have swearing explained to them, that there is swearing throughout the scriptures and that God orders swearing. Deuteronomy chapter 10. It is so pitiful that people who claim to believe the Bible get so confused about the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I love this. I want to be just like Paul, and I want you to be just like Paul. And they swore, and we should swear in important situations. And the real point that I want to leave from this, take from this verse, is that he made mention, so we're going to learn about praying, but he made mention without ceasing and always for these Roman saints. And we want to be prayers, prayer warriors, or prayers like that, so that we can take the same oath in our matter of praying. Now that's a lesson from Romans 1.9. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. Now that's a commandment to swear. Amen. Well, if there's a commandment, and now we can repeat this so many times, they swore throughout the Bible. Every time, what do you think your, your online Bible search program is going to say when you put in the words, as the Lord liveth? Once, twice, as the Lord liveth is an oath. So I want to save you from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I want to save you from the Quakers, and I want to save you from the Mennonites, those little fake, humble people that walk around in pajamas and put little bonnets on their heads. They deny the Word of God, and they deny the worship of God. The Word of God commands us to swear, and the worship of God includes swearing. I despise their doctrine. I abominate their ideas. Because God is to be referenced in every important matter in the universe. Every important controversy that ever arises, God should be appealed to. As the Lord liveth, I will do that. I call God to record on my soul. Job said, my record is in heaven. My testimony is on high. That's swearing constantly to lift up God Almighty. These little people who get into court and and quote Matthew 5 or quote James 5, I wish they'd read their Bibles. Our children should know better than that. Okay, Pastor, if that's the case, if you've got all these verses, and I believe you're right about swearing in the Bible, what in the world does Matthew 5 and James 5 mean? We'll turn to Matthew 23, and let's quickly summarize the lesson. There's a whole sermon, if not sermons, on this subject. Those sermons are my preaching on Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in a sermon entitled Swearing. But let's turn to Matthew 23 and see what Jesus was correcting. And brethren, this is how we study the Bible. First, there's a two-step approach to the Bible. Always a two-step approach. This is so simple, a child can learn it. This is how we understand Scripture. When we read a passage of Scripture, like Matthew 5 and James 5, that says, Swear not at all, and anything more than yea or nay is sin. 
When we read a statement like that, the first thing we do is because we've read the Bible, we know that there is 1,000 cases of godly men swearing, including God himself, Jesus Christ, and Paul. So we know that that passage cannot mean what it appears to be saying at first superficial glance. The second thing we do is look for other passages that will tell us what Jesus Christ was condemning. And Matthew 23 is going to tell us. It's a two-step approach. You first of all prove what a passage cannot be saying, and then you look in the rest of the Bible to find out what it must be saying. Is that simple enough? This is how we do it. This is what saves us from so many errors. We want to go down the crown of the road. And I've preached on swearing before and the extent that it gets into our lives. Anytime you say, my lands, my Lord, gosh, jolly, gee, all that's swearing. Crap. In other words, that I'll spare you for the moment. Do you know what you're doing? You know what the world does? When they want to convince you of their sincerity and when they want to convince you that something that just happened to them hurt, they appeal to the highest authority they know. Bull excrement. Or their mother being a whoremonger with an F word. That's one ditch. Then we've got Mennonites, Quakers, and Jehovah's Witnesses in another ditch. We want to go right down the middle of the road. We want to avoid any reference to things like that ever in our speech. And we want to glorify God by swearing in his name when there's important matters at stake because it's an act of worship. And we're saying my whole life stands before the God of heaven who is watching what I'm doing and hearing what I'm saying. And I will perform. It's wonderful. Here's what Jesus was correcting. I love the word of God. I love the fact that there are passages like Matthew 5 and James 5 that say, swear not at all, neither by heaven nor by earth, neither by Jerusalem, nor by your head, nor by your hair, nor by anything. Swear not at all. I love it that it says that. Do you know why? Because then Quakers, Mennonites, and Jehovah's Witnesses can come into the Bible, tie a hangman noose, toss it over a limb, and hang themselves. Because they don't want to follow the word of God. Listen. You say you've said that four times now. I'm ready for Matthew 23. Okay. So am I. Verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gold... Or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Jesus reduced all swearing back to God. So if the object is God, it's okay. If it's frivolous and stupid little rules like this, it's not okay. This is the word of God. Are you excited in your soul that in Romans chapter 1 verse 9 by a few words... We have a lesson given to us. Amen. For God is my witness. 
There's a lesson of doctrine and a lesson of practice in those words. And we want to mine the word of God and take from it everything that he gives us. We do not want to be Mennonites, Quakers, and Jehovah's Witnesses. We are not impressed by their false humility. Their shame of God. Their ignorance of the Bible. And if you think my language is bad, do you read Jesus Christ on the subject? Ye fools and blind. Ye fools and blind. Look at what the Jews were doing. The Jews were so money hungry, they had their money changers in the temple of God and had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. They were so money obsessed that the, that the gift on the altar was more important than the altar. Did you see it? The gold of the temple was more important than the temple. It's that kind of swearing. It's that kind of rule making. It's that kind of distortion of what's important that the Lord Jesus Christ was condemning. For God is my witness. Oh, brethren, do you live so that God can be a witness? Do I live so that God can be a witness and we can call him to record before the high court of heaven? You may never stand in the courts of this land, but every day we, in effect, say, Lord, examine me. I'm thinking of Psalm 26 right now. Lord, try me. Lord, judge me. If you're living like Paul, you can do it. If you're living like David, you can do it. You say, well, David sinned. I know about five of his sins. Yep. And he confessed them and went right back to swearing before God. Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is that wonderful 50-verse psalm that's also in 2 Samuel that describes God delivering David from all his enemies. In the middle of that psalm, you can find David saying, Because of my righteousness, God delivered me. Because of my faithfulness, God delivered me. That's powerful language. May the Lord bless us to be able to speak that way before him. There is nothing in heaven or in hell or on earth that can resist you if you have the righteous character of David, Paul, or Jesus and are able to stand before God and call him to record that you are clean. You have clean hands, clean heart, and clean lips. You say, but what about Isaiah? He said, woe is me. Well, in the sight of a holy God, your sins are going to come to light. And that's what self-examination is. We go into the Word of God, and it points out to us our foolish words, our foolish thoughts, our sinful thoughts. That's why we come before the Word of God. But we can confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness. All our unrighteousness. So that you can go right back to saying, God is my witness. I hate false doctrine. Romans chapter 1. I want you to hate it. I want you to love the truth. Paul invoked the name of God simply about his prayer habits in more than one place. He's going to invoke the name of God in Romans chapter 9 to convince his readers that he truly was concerned about Jews. Because if you looked at his life, he had rejected the Jewish nation and was going after the Gentiles. For the Jews that were in the church at Rome, guess what they needed? A little pat on the back that Paul still cared about them. And so he said what he said in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. Oh, there's a, there's a method to his madness. Amen. And they may have called him mad, but we know he was inspired by God. Amen. And I say that only in the sense that they said it. There is great method to the Holy Spirit in every single word that we have. I love the word of God and I believe every single word has a lesson for us. 
And I hope that you just enjoyed the lesson we got from the first few words of verse 9. May the Lord bless us with more. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. What a description of Paul's life. He served him with his spirit. Who was he serving? The God of heaven. The God that he swore by. For God is my witness, whom I serve. Whom I serve with my spirit. Brethren, we come into the house of God today. You are either here with your spirit engaged or with only your body engaged. You're warming foam rubber or your spirit is engaged with the God of heaven and with the word of God. (laughs) Isaiah warned and Jesus quoted, They draw nigh to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where is your heart this morning? Begrudging someone in the assembly? Begrudging me? Begrudging that you have to take four hours of your week and put them here when you've got 164 other hours that you waste week after week after week? Is it just your body that is here? Or is your spirit engaged? Whom I serve with my spirit. Do you have a spirit? The body without the spirit is dead. If you didn't have a spirit, then you'd be dead. You'd be, you'd be lying on your back or hunched over in your pew. We have a spirit. Some of you think that you're high-spirited. Some of you think others are high-spirited. Some of you have intense spirits. But do you know what we ought to know about our spirits and commit about our spirits? That we have committed spirits. That we have spiritually-minded spirits. That we have devoted spirits. I love spirit. Do you love spirit? Your spirit, whom I serve with my spirit. I love it when he makes it plain enough that I can know what he's talking about. His spirit, Paul's spirit, was committed to the service of God. What is your spirit committed to? You know, there were a lot of people yesterday that gathered in houses of worship across this nation to celebrate football championships for college conferences. And their spirits were engaged because their spirits cannot get any higher than little boys playing with a strangely shaped ball. But where is your spirit? Did you sing with your spirit with the same type of spirit intensity that they cheered their football teams on with yesterday? Right. Did you? Amen. Did you? Amen. I know that about you. Just keep it. Whom I serve with my spirit. Amen. They draw near to me with their lips. Most of your lips were moving when we sang. Were your spirits engaged? Were your hearts in it? Did you get yourself prepared last night and get yourself prepared this morning? Or we're not like Paul. And if we're not like Paul, we're not measuring up to the standard. We can be like Paul. He was a sinner. Just wait till we get to Romans 7. You're going to think he's worse than you. But right here in Romans 1, he looks better than you, doesn't he? We can do it, though. He's not setting anything before us that we can't do. He said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am a follower of Christ. He said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Did you bring your spirits this morning? Or are you going through the motions and your spirit is eager to get out of here and get to the NFL? (laughs) Yes. Yes, we'll watch college football on Saturday and we'll watch the NFL on Sunday. And on Monday night, we'll watch the NFL again. And for those of you who don't like spectator sports, whatever little itty dinky things in your life that steal your soul and interest are just as bad. That's right. All your little hobbies stink just as much as spectator sports. 
Where is your spirit? Okay, enough on that. Paul wanted us to know that his spirit was engaged. Is our spirit engaged? Do do you develop your spirit? Do you have an intense one or is yours a calm one? In certain situations, a calm one's better than an intense one. You don't have to say you're sorry nearly as many times. But is your spirit engaged? Hey, you Zacharator, is your spirit engaged? All of us have to answer before God because he, you know what? God seeks such to worship him that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. The truth is being laid out right here. Are our spirits engaged? It's not going through the motions. You could toss an animal on the Old Testament sack altar and burn it up. But the Lord wants our spirits. Lord, help us to be like Paul. What good is a spirit, no matter how energetic or intense it might be, if it doesn't lead us to be spirit-led and serving of Christ and serving of the saints? Do you feel spirited this morning? Toward the Lord? Lord, help us. My spirit can plummet and blast off like a rocket. I wish I could corral the thing and make sure that it's always aimed upward. To the throne of God. It's a, it's a wonderful thing He gave us. Can you stir it up? Does He call on us to stir it up? Yes, He does. Stir it. That's why we come into the house of God. That's why we want to sing songs of a variety. We don't want to sing all funeral dirges in the minor. Funeral dirges in the minor tend to put you to sleep and take your spirit and shoot it. In some respects. Some, my favorite song in all of our hymnals is a minor funeral dirge. Ah, dearest Jesus, how hast thou offended? But you know, when we sing, I will call upon the Lord, what does it do to your spirit? Does it, does it get you into Psalm 18? Lord, here I am. By my God, I have run through a troop. And by my God, I'll leap over a wall. It stirs us up. Both kinds stir us up. I hope we sing, ah, dearest Jesus, in a few minutes. When we have the Lord's Supper, because it stirs me up to think about what he did for me. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Our spirits and our intensity ought to be dedicated to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news, the glad tidings about Jesus Christ, the son of God, that he is indeed God's son, that he laid down his life on the cross of Calvary to pay for our son's sins by a substitutionary death, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that he ascended into heaven, and he's waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool. He is the high king of heaven. He's coming for us to destroy this world, and he will sit in judgment on all men, and he'll receive us unto himself because he has our names in the book of life, which is called the book of life of the Lamb slain. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It includes the church of God, which is this assembly. It includes the word of God. It includes the spirit of God. It includes the saints of God. And all those things should be the most important things to us in our lives. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Is the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on a throne at this hour, In a brilliant light that no man can approach unto from his divine side. Are you serving him? Do you love him? The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, 
The Bible says, pray without ceasing. Did Paul keep his own commandments? That without ceasing, here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, that without ceasing. Paul prayed just like he taught. When it says without ceasing, that doesn't mean that Paul was praying with audible sounds 24-7. That doesn't mean Paul was praying with internal sounds 24-7. Without ceasing means he never ceased. He didn't give up, quit, or get lazy about prayer. He stayed at it. If morning, noon, and evening were his three times of appointed prayer, like they were for David in, in Psalm 55 and verse 17, or they were like Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, then at those three times he prayed. He didn't let things interfere with his prayer time because he knew that his prayer time was the most powerful thing he did in his life. That's what it means without ceasing. It means I don't give up. I don't quit. You know, you know we're all quitters when it comes to praying. We get distracted. We let other things get interfere with our, with our praying. We think, well, I've got to get and do this. I've got to get this done. Oh, 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 you try to get things done and cut the Lord out, not much will get done. If you go to the Lord and let something go, the Lord can multiply loaves and fishes better than you can. You think your might and your energy and your wit can do what he can do? So without ceasing, we pray. Lord, forgive us for not praying like we should. Forgive us for not being like Romans 1.9 teaches us. You know, every non-praying person, every partial praying person sitting in the assembly of Rome, when that epistle was read, would have been condemned, just like you are right now, and just like I am. That's what the Word of God is for. It's to condemn us, convict us, convince us, convert us, and get us committed to go out of here and pray more. That's what we're here together for. Let's be prayer warriors like Paul was. You say, where'd the word prayer warrior come from? Well, if you're going to fight in the military, you're called a warrior. And if you're going to fight the good fight of faith, Ephesians 6 tells you to put on armor and withstand the devil and to fight. And how do you fight? From your knees. Verse 18 of Ephesians 6. He says, I make mention of you. Don't be overwhelmed by Paul's prayer habits. When you read through the epistles and you find him praying for every church, every need, every problem, and you say, how does a person have enough time to pray for all that? I can't even pray for all the church members. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. And you can pray for other churches, known and unknown. And you can pray for other saints, known and unknown. And you can pray for family members, known and unknown. Future and past, you can pray. You can pray for a whole lot more if we'll take heed to these words. That without ceasing, I make mention. Praise the Lord. Paul understood prayer. Paul knew that God was not dependent on him for details. Too many times we pray as if God's dependent on us for details. Or that us providing details lends fervency to the prayer. No, the Bible never tells us that. The Bible only says pray without ceasing. That's what gets God's attention is when we keep coming and knocking at the door of a man who's in bed who doesn't want to get up and help us. This is what the Lord said. I'm not. There's a parable about praying. It's called importunity. An importunate man gets his prayers answered. There's two lessons Jesus gave. Let me quickly remind you of them. Number one, a man's in bed. His friend has company arrive. And his friend comes to the door. Listen, I need help. I just had company arrive. 
Can you loan me some bread and butter? Can you loan me some eggs? Can you loan me some meat? Can you loan me some wine? From inside, the man cries out and said, Listen, I'm already in bed with my children. They had small houses back then. I'm already in bed with my children. Don't think about it, Jonathan. I know your time is short, but I'm in bed with my children. Isn't that a horrible answer? If you went to someone's door at night and knocked because you had a need, and the man inside says, I'm already in bed with my children. You know what Jesus said? Eventually that man's going to get out of bed and go to the door and give you your meat, wine, butter, or bread, whatever you needed. Not because you're his friend, but because you keep banging on the door. <laughs> yes! That Was Jesus a great teacher? Does that get the lesson across? How many times do you go away because at your first knock, nobody gets out of bed for you? Jesus said that. Importunity means I don't give up. I'm going to keep irritating you until you give me the blessing. Was Jacob importunate? Right. Jacob's wrestling with the Lord. And the Lord says, listen, it's about, it's about daybreak. I got, I'm leaving. Oh, no, you're not. Can you believe? Is that, that's boldness. Oh, no, you're not. Not until you bless me am I going to let you go. I'm going to get you in a half Nelson and hold you tight until you give me a blessing. As a child, I've told you this so many times. As a child, I didn't understand that story. Now I understand it. God makes himself vulnerable to us by prayer. When we'll be importunate in prayer. Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And then did God bless him? No, God cursed him. God touched his thigh and his thigh went out of joint, the strongest muscles in your body. You ever try wrestling with your thigh out of joint, your hip out of joint? Try it sometime. You need, you need that lower half of your body because those are by far the strongest muscles in your body. So he gets cursed, but he ain't going to let go. He's locked on to the Lord, even though his, his thigh's out of joint. He limped for the rest of his life, the Bible tells us. Right. Then God said, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. Because as a prince, you have power with God, and you just won the match. You prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. Esau is coming with 400 men. All I have is 11 little boys under the age of 13. What do we do? Let's sit down and strategize. Let's sit down and strategize. What do you think I ought to do? Do you know how many minutes he took in that? Five. You know what the five minutes were for? Send gifts. Divide up into two bands so that if he kills one group, the other group will survive and run away. Send gifts. Do you know what he did all night long? Pray. That's your proportion. I'm as guilty as anybody on planet Earth. I hate, I hate confidence in our own abilities or confidence in our efforts. We need to flush our confidence and pray. Five minutes for strategizing, all night for praying. Got the job done. Esau came and hugged his brother and kissed him on the neck. He said, brother, it's so good to see you. What are, what's all this gifts for? You keep it. I don't need that, man. I just love you to see your face. Oh, I said there were two examples taught by Jesus. The other one is this. There was an unjust judge. 
a wicked judge wore a black robe. And there was a widow that needed to be avenged of her creditors because she was a widow. And she needed to be delivered by this unjust judge. And Jesus gave this little story. These stories can be found in Luke 11 and Luke 18. And Jesus said, do you think that unjust judge, when he first had that widow come to him, he said, I don't fear God or man. I don't care what God thinks. I don't care what men think. I can't stand this widow. But because she keeps coming and bugging the daylights out of my office, and every morning there's an email, and every morning there's, an- there's phone calls on my answering machine, I will avenge her of her adversaries. Jesus said, that is how prayer gets things done. By her continual coming, she's going to drive me crazy. Now, we don't drive God crazy. We put a big smile on God's face when we keep coming. Because we show where our real blessing and power comes from, not from ourselves. You can move mountains if you had faith. Sorry, I don't have it here. A grain of a mustard seed. You say, I think that's more than is in Romans 1.9. Well, forgive me. I told you I was going to preach the whole Bible Amen. through the spectacles of Romans. Right. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. You can pray for a lot of things when you just make mention of them and realize the principle about prayer God knows what we have need of before we ask. And God knows more of the details than you'll ever know. And details don't prove your fervency. Frequency and constancy prove your fervency. And trust and faith. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He says, without ceasing, I make mention of you always. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says to pray always. Well, Paul prayed always. And so he kept his commandment in this part of the verse as well. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. Paul prayed always. So we have Romans 1.9. He said this to convince the Roman saints of how much he truly did care for them. When you are living in the capital of the empire, you get things first. But Paul had traveled all over the known world and hadn't been to Rome yet. But he's telling them how much he did care for them and prayed for them always. Verse 10, making request. What was his request? If by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Praying involves requests. When you go to God and ask him for something, that's not greedy. That's not irritating to him. That's, part, that's what praying is for. He just wants you to come with some thanksgiving for the things he's already done. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 tells us to do that. And Paul has already given thanks to God. Notice verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Verse 9, making request. Verse 10, telling us what a particular request is that he could come and visit them. So we have thanksgiving and we lay our petitions before him. He wants us to ask. You have not because you ask not. If you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. What father is there, if his son asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye be sinful fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to them that ask him? You have not because you ask not. That's the wonderful circle that's in the Bible. 
empower your lives and accomplish things by prayer. Paul did. Paul knew that his efforts were not going to get the job done with these far-flung churches. But his prayers could. He turned the world upside down. One man. And he didn't have email or a website. He had a few other gifts. Verse 10. Making request, if by any means. He didn't know how he was going to get there. He was so busy. And he had other obligations outside of Italy. He didn't know how he was going to get there, but... If by any means God could get him there, he wanted to be there. Did God get him there by some unusual means? Yeah, paid trip. One way ticket. By the Roman government. Took him from Caesarea to Rome. It was a long trip. It was a painful trip. It was not prosperous in the sense that Paul asked for it here in verse 10. It was kind of painful. But you know what? He prospered in some other ways on the way. There were men converted where he stayed that saw the power of God demonstrated before their very eyes. Now at length, he mentions, because he'd wanted to go there for a long time. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, Oftentimes I purpose to come unto you. Chapter 15 and verse 23 tells us that he had tried to visit them before, but had been hindered. You can go to Acts chapter 19 and find out Paul wanted to go to Rome, and he says so in Acts chapter 19. Luke records it for us in the 19th chapter. Making request, if by any means, now at length, after all this time, when I've tried to come to you, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. I hope you can understand the whole verse. I do want to pick up the pace here just a little bit, but I want to point out about the will of God. You are utterly dependent upon the will of God for every aspect of your life, including something as noble and good as visiting Rome to preach the gospel there. Paul knew that he could not come and visit them if it were not for the will of God in the matter. Look at chapter 15 and verse 32. We, want, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but we should really believe in the sovereignty of God when we think about praying and purposing and planning. Because you aren't going to plan, purpose, or do anything and accomplish it without the will of God in the matter. Look at Romans 15, 32 to see Paul's dependence. And this is, oh, there's more examples outside the epistle to the Romans. Romans 15, 32. That I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. That sounds just like he starts off the epistle. He wanted to be refreshed with those Roman saints, but he's submitting the whole thing to the will of God. In James chapter 4, it says, Go to now, ye that say, we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Don't talk that way. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Anything you're going to do, even if it's called a this or a that, is dependent on the will of God. If the Lord will, we shall live. Because if God cuts you off, you're not going to do anything. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. That's how you ought to speak. That's how you ought to pray. That's how you ought to plan. And that is how you write a business plan or any intention of what you're going to accomplish. This or that. Amen. See, Paul already knew that. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is in modern Greece. Modern Turkey. Forgive me. Modern Turkey. Paul's in modern Turkey. He tries to go north. He's coming from the east. He tries to go north. The Holy Spirit forbids him. It's very clearly described there. He tries to go south. 
The Holy Spirit stops him, will not let him. That night, he gets a vision, and a man from Macedonia that was across the body of water, that was Greece proper, said, come over and help us. He woke up in the morning, and Luke says, we assuredly gathered that it was God's will for us to go to Macedonia. So they immediately got on a ship, crossed the water, and ended up in Philippi. And you have the rest of Acts chapter 16 about the church being established in Philippi, Lydia being found, because it was God's will for Paul not to go north, Paul not to go south, Paul to go west and end up in Philippi, and a jailer and his whole household were converted and baptized, and Lydia and her household were converted. Praise the Lord! When the will of God is in a matter, he can get Philip to a eunuch in the middle of the desert, and he can get Paul in the dark, deep dungeon of a prison in Philippi to save a jailer's family. That's the will of God in the matter. That's why Paul could easily write it in chapter 1, easily write it in chapter 15, that the will of God had to be governing the situation for him to accomplish anything, especially a prosperous journey. Because you will not prosper unless you submit your plans to the will of God and tell God if you reign on this, that's okay with me too. Because you've given me the Lord Jesus Christ, so I don't care if you reign on this little parade of mine. Making requests, if by any means, he could come to him. There's so much more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I hope you trust everything to the will of God. Amen. Make sure you're measuring everything by the word of God, then submit everything to the will of God. If you're measuring everything by the word of God, then you will not have the prosperity of fools deceiving you. Don't you dare measure things by results. Results are not the measurement of the will of God. It must be God's will, it turned out. Are you kidding me? What makes you think that way? This can't be God's will. It's not turning out. Are you kidding me? How long did David have to wait to get the throne of Israel after having been anointed by Samuel the prophet? How many times was he chased out of Israel and lived among the Philistines? That's not how we measure God's will. When I hear someone say that, I think how infantile, how selfish, and how ignorant of the Bible. Results do not prove the will of God. The Word of God proves the will of God. Did Sennacherib think that he had God working for him? Was God working for him or was God using him like an axe and a rod and a saw? And as soon as he was done using him, he was going to punish him. Remember, one of the Proverbs that is corrupted in the false versions is Rome, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32. The prosperity of fools shall destroy them. And don't let the prosperity of fools destroy you. We do not measure things by whether they work or not. You don't have your child disobey, spank him once, have him commit the same sin, know a neighbor that doesn't spank their children, and their child is more obedient than yours, and say, oh man, spanking doesn't work. You're an idiot. You're a whole lot worse than that, but I'm going to be kind right now and just call you an idiot. The word of God is true. And it says, spare not when he cries. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. The Bible says the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. We don't measure things by results. We measure things by the word of God, and then we submit it to the will of God. What, what should I do with my life? Easy. A man's heart divides his way. What do you like to do? You know, some of you in here want to be in the field of medicine. I don't want to see your body, touch your body, or poke your body. 
If you need a hypodermic needle put into you in order for you to live, you better hope that someone else shows up and not me. Because if I show up, I won't be able to get it in you. You'll have to do it to yourself, and I won't be able to watch. I just wasn't made for any of that stuff. I got family members that just think it's the coolest thing in the world to go around stabbing hypos into people. And there's others in this church that enjoy doing that. I'll do a lot of things for you, but not that one. A man's heart deviseth his way. This, this information is so precious from the Bible. A man's heart deviseth his way. Proverbs 16, 9. What do you like to do? Go do it. The Lord's going to direct your steps. Amen. You pick what you like based on God's word, and you pick how you're going to prosecute it based on God's word, then you submit it to God's will. Follow your heart as measured by God's word, submitting all your plans to God's will. And the Lord will direct you to the field of Boaz, and you will live happily ever after. If you're constantly following your heart in light of God's word and submitting it to God's will. Did Ruth live happily ever after? Did David live happily ever after? Yes. Did Esther live happily ever after? Yes. Thank you, Lord, for the wisdom of your word when it comes to the will of God. Verse 11, for I long to see you. Why was he making a request to visit them? For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. I long to see you. If you were listening carefully as I read Philippians 1, did you hear him say, For I have you in my heart. Did you, did you hear those words? Last night or this morning. For I have you in my heart. I have you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, I have bowels of compassion for you Philippians. I long to see you. It had been a long time, and Paul loved these saints, and that's why he wanted to see them. For I long to see you. I have a desire. I have a craving. For I long to see you. Why? And brethren, this is what we have to keep important at all times for our church and our families. Why do we get together? What do we do when we get together? What's the purpose or goal of getting together as families or as a church? For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. I want to get to Rome not to go bowling, not to go shooting, not to look at your gun collections, not to look at your car collections, and not to watch the Roman road warriors play football in the RFL. That's the Roman Football League. That's not why I want to get to Rome. This is very important for us. It's not for the warm and fuzzies. It's not for candles on Christmas Eve. It's not for a fire in the fireplace, two bratwurst and a a good beer. It's not for cheese and crackers and wine. Notice, this is love. This is love. This is the standard of Paul. And if you can remember right now, all that was in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1, which is hard for us to do in light of this, this is the lesson we want. I long to see you that I may. He tells us why he wants to be there. Impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. When we have a conversation between us two people or the whole congregation, the end of that conversation should be building each other up to be better Christians, to establish each other in the faith of the gospel, to provoke each other to love and to good works. This is why we're Christians in a body. If it wasn't for the body, then you could do your thing at home and I would do my thing at home. 
You could stay inside your four walls. I would stay inside my four walls. You could read your Bible, and I could read my Bible. But we need to get together to help build each other up and establish each other in the truth. And that needs to be our constant goal. And the flesh and the world and the devil are constantly trying to undermine us and distract us with superficial conversation, jesting, activities, programs, rather than building each other up in the truth. This is Paul. We want to be just like him. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. What does he mean? How is he going to impart some spiritual gift? Was he going to have a service and lay hands on them and give them the gift of speaking in tongues? No. He was going to use the spiritual gifts he had in imparting to them knowledge, truth, and a foundation for their lives. How do we know that? Because the immediate context tells us that. Verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He didn't say, so as much as in me is, I can't wait to get there to lay hands on you to give you the gift of miracles. He tells you in the end of this verse. That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. What establishes a person? What establishes them or gives them a foundation that is solid, the preaching of the gospel. I want to get there and correct your misunderstanding of the Jewish-Gentile situation. I want to get there and correct your misunderstanding of the relationship of the law of Moses to the grace of God. I want to get there and correct your misunderstanding of Christian liberty, Romans chapter 14. I'm going to correct all those things to establish you in the truth of the gospel. It was an apostolic privilege and power to dispense spiritual gifts. Remember, Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel, and many were baptized. When the apostles heard that the gospel had been preached in Samaria, they sent Peter and John up there to lay hands on them so that they could receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because Philip was only an evangelist and didn't have enough power to do that. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prove a point to you as to why I take this line on, this, on these words. The second reason I take it is when you go through the rest of the epistle and you come to chapter 15, he tells you very carefully that he was coming to Rome to use his gifts to preach the gospel to them. Verses 24, 29, and 32 of Romans 15. The other reason is that in Romans 12, he mentions that they already had the gifts. Do you know what he says in Romans 12? He that has the gift of prophecy, let him prophesy according to the proportion of faith. They already had the gifts. He wasn't coming to impart to them some gift of doing miracles to go out and call fire down from heaven or to eat some, drink some deadly thing. He was going to use a spiritual gift he had to communicate the gospel of knowledge and a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, truth to them by prophesying and preaching God's word in an inspired fashion for them to be established in the truth of the gospel. And when we read the rest of the epistle, he doesn't point out that they're deficient in gifts. He points out they're deficient in knowledge. And this is Paul's explanation for the use of ministerial gifts. Why did God go to heaven? I mean, why did Jesus go to heaven and God give to him gifts for the church? And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for what? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till there would be no, there would be no for, for longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the cunning craftiness of men whereby they lie in wait to deceive that we grow up in Christ the full measure of his stature. That's what he wanted to accomplish with them. That fits everything in the Word of God. That fits everything in the Epistle to Rome. He was not going there to give them the gift of tongues. That doesn't establish anybody in the faith. The preaching of the gospel is what establishes them in the faith. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift 
to the end ye may be established. Now, verse 12 is good because it explains verse 11. That is. And when we find these that is's, and there are several of them in the epistle to the Romans, it explains what has just been said. That is, he's going to tell you what he meant by verse 11. And he didn't mean giving them the gift of tongues. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. I want to get together in Rome with you Roman saints so that we can rejoice together around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to use the spiritual gift that God has given me to establish you in the faith. But you're going to comfort me by me witnessing your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And together, we're going to have a wonderful time around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is what he says in verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Remember in Philippians 1, he told the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for the fellowship we have had in the gospel from the first day until now. He wants to establish that kind of a relationship with the Romans. He didn't start the Roman church. Someone else did. He started the Philippian church so he could say to them, I thank my God for the fellowship in the gospel that we have had from the beginning. He wanted that kind of a relationship with the Romans. And to get there, preach to them, have them receive the preaching from faith to faith. They could sit down and rejoice together around the good things of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to accomplish in verses 11 and 12. To establish is to render stable or firm. It's to strengthen by material support. It's to ratify. It's to confirm. It's to validate. It's to prove. And it's to provide a calmness or steadiness to saints who might have been tossed to and fro with some false teachers coming out of Jerusalem about the law of Moses and the Old Testament. And so Paul was going to correct all that for them. True fellowship. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, Truly, our fellowship is with God, our Father, and, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things unto you that your joy might be full. We want you to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted with the Roman saints. He wanted to get there and to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ought to be the center of our conversation and ought to be the center of our purpose and it ought to be the center of every marriage. And for those of you that aren't married, you don't have to waste a single day. The Lord Jesus Christ can be the center of your marriage and the fellowship around Him. You too. And that's what we want for our church. That's what we want for our gatherings. Those spirit-filled believers in Acts chapter 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. You know what the Bible does tell us? Paul landed way down the boot of Italy. He landed way down the boot of Italy. He came ashore, and he started making his way toward Rome. And as soon as they heard it, you know, some brethren in the church at Rome came and met him halfway. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 28 that his heart was encouraged because you know where he was going? He was going to the jaws of hell. He was going to the emperor's seat. He was going to stand on trial before Caesar. Did you hear those words in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1? I am set for the defense of the gospel. And he said, as long as you people are praying for me, and as long as you stand steadfast in the faith, I'm excited about doing it. I can't wait to get there. Did you hear that it said, the preaching of the gospel has been made manifest in all the palace. Does that get you excited? Palace. Caesar's palace. 
everybody was talking about a man being on trial that was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he loved it. He wanted to get together with them and have a few cheese and crackers and a glass of wine around a fire, but talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.